in 30 years, right? Let's say let's say that the hotlets are right and in 30 years Bitcoin is the currency. It's the it's the world's reserve currency. And it's also the world's best because it's the scarcest resource. It's the best store of wealth because there's less of it each year because people lose their wallets, they forget their forget codes to to access their Bitcoin. There's less each year. Then People start using it as a store of wealth, which means property no longer gets used as a store of wealth. Now, when that happens, I think property prices would come down, but in Bitcoin terms, they would. And what happens then is everyone could afford to have their own home. And then people actually put pride into it because it's like, this is my home. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you will know that we view property as a method or a pathway to create the life that you've always wanted, a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. But there are many ways to think about doing that. Real estate is just one path. It tends to be the path that we talk about the most because it's the path that we know the best, know the most about. But also, there's other ways you can think about this too, including cryptocurrencies. Now, crypto has been on the tip of everyone's tongue for the last few years. Um, we've seen a lot of volatility in this space, but also a lot of interest in it. And joining me today to dig into this topic is Emil Pinder, who's our head of content, but also he's a passionate property investor, a wealth of property experience, and also is into crypto as well. So it'll be a great conversation for us to dig into around crypto versus property and get to understand that a little bit more. Emil, how are you? Oh, very well, thanks. Goose yourself? Very well, thank you. So, Alrighty. The, the reason we decided to do this podcast is actually because of a bit of a background that you had. You had exposure to property and then uh, not that long ago, I don't. I think it was, you got, in, got into crypto and that kind of changed your, your kind of point of view. And so as a lot of people kind of think of crypto, it, the people that are into it are really into it. The people, uh, it's really divisive. You're either really into it or you probably don't know anything about it and you think it's just stupid and doesn't make any sense. And property is something that people intrinsically understand. You know, it's like a roof over the head, it's shelter, it's got this utility, you know, like people can kind of see how it makes sense and it feels a lot safer. And so as someone who is a property guy, like you've been a property guy for years, it's interesting that you've now developed this kind of crypto, you know, kind of component to your, to the ecosystem of you. So I'd love to get to a bit of an understanding of like why, how that happened and how you started getting interested in crypto. All right. Well, winding back the clock a few years, I had uh, property in Australia. I was doing fine, was doing great. And uh, I went into a property development. And that property development needed a few more funds at various stages. And so I ended up liquidating a couple of properties that I had in Australia and using that cash to fund the property development. At the same time, due to personal circumstances, I moved to Japan. And at the end of the property development, it can be hard to get onto retail finance. And I couldn't. So then it was like, okay, well, I'll sell them. We sold the two properties for 2.6, which was all right. And and so then I'm sitting around with this cash and I can't get back into the Aussie property market because I'm now living in Japan. I've only been in my new job for a short amount of time and it's it's complicated. Then you've got to factor in right non with non-resident withholding tax on any cash that you get from the rentals and things like that. Trying to get lending, it all seemed very difficult. And so, uh, well, impossible, really. So looking around, thinking, well, shit, what do I do with this cash? Where can I put it? I better get educated on a few things. I'd never been into shares. My parents made that mistake for me in <laughs> 1987 and all that. So I was thinking, what do I do? And I went down the rabbit hole of crypto. And what I found was pretty fascinating. And I think there's a, there's a large number of people who kind of have heard about crypto, haven't gone too deeply into it. And... Um, what the most valuable thing it did was help me understand the financial system, specifically help me understand property. Like I thought I was a property guy. I thought I knew tons about property, but the depth of understanding on property that this process has given me, it's like I I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. So that I think has been fascinating and useful. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's super interesting, right? Because I've been on my own bit of a crypto journey uh, in a very minor ways. Look, I Currently, I don't own any crypto, so just 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 so everyone, we're all on the same page uh, on this podcast. I don't I don't own any crypto right now. I'm so I'm not a kind of, I'm not the kind of person. I'm not going to recommend that people go 
But what I've, what I've found is, is really interesting. I kind of like dabbled in, try to understand it. I kind of invested a little bit. Every time I put money into it, it lost money. I was like, this is weird. Um, <laughs> but, it was, uh, but over the last six months, I've developed a revitalized opinion of it, and uh, which I'll, I'll, I'll get into in a minute. But it's very interesting that you said it helped you to better understand property. Can you kind of talk to that? What did you mean by that? The reason that property continues to go up and up and up I believe is due to monetary expansion. Now, some regions go up more than others, which I believe comes back to supply and demand. But the actual reason that property overall keeps going up and up and up, I believe comes down to monetary expansion. And when people are looking at crypto at the moment, they are looking at it, a lot of people are looking at it as an asset instead of currency. Now, if you look at crypto as an asset, then it's like, well, what return? What dividend do I get? What yield do I get? Nothing. Okay. So, well, why would it go up? It doesn't produce. Like, what? what is it? Yeah. And Where's it the utility? You know? Yeah, yeah, like, it, yeah. It, it doesn't fare well if you're looking at it as an asset. But if you're looking at it as a currency, then suddenly that's that's where the, the mindset shift happens. So, yeah. Can, can I just say that was the shift that happened for me? That was the shift that happened for me. I was at a, um, I was at a, a conference uh in the last in the last six months, uh, and it was around um, international finance uh, and you know investing and all of this kind of stuff. And it was this kind of like global macro uh, kind of conference. And again, I'd never really understood it because I was thinking about it as an investment. I was thinking about it as an asset, and I was like, I don't get it. Like it doesn't. It's got no utility, and it just seems quite volatile and all of this kind of stuff. I was like, I don't. I don't get it. Like there's way better ways for me to invest my money in an asset. And then there was a there was a speaker who. Finally, I can't remember exactly what he was saying, but he, the penny dropped for me that it was a currency, or it was a it was a way to to have my money outside of the traditional banking system, which effectively is kind of like what you are saying with the currency. It's another place that I can put my money that it could be exchanged, and all of a sudden, I understood the utility of it and how it made sense. So, can you explain what you mean by uh, what it by by the by the currency statement that you just made? Like, what do you mean by currency, and can you kind of dig into it a little bit more? Yeah, this is really great because I didn't even know what money was, right? I mean, I know I know what a fifty dollar note is when I see it in a wallet. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a fifty dollar note, but I don't know what the what the purpose of currency is, and it basically is defined as there being three properties. The first is a medium of exchange. So you have a house, I have cash, I can give you the cash, I get the house, and so just just using it to buy stuff, basically, and the usefulness of that is is really good, right? We like having money so that we can buy stuff instead of like having to use some other thing like glass beads or whatever. And in order for it to be a good medium of exchange, which basically means, you know, money changing hands, it needs to have a few properties. Most importantly, it needs to be durable across space and time. So it's no good if you have something like flowers as your currency. Or, or something like news, uh, newspapers, probably a bad example, but, but things that are going to perish, right? Fruit, food. Food is not a great currency because it's, it's worth a lot more today than it is tomorrow. And you want things that are going to hold their value and also things that are easily transportable. So dense metals are good, but wood wouldn't be a very good because it's so light, right? It's lighter than water. So that's the first thing, stuff that you can exchange and buy stuff. The second thing is they call it a unit of account, which is a common denominator. So, for example, if you've got a house of $500,000 and I make shoes and I'm like, well, I'll give you a thousand, I'll give you 1,100 shoes for the house. And you're like, okay, a couple of problems there. I don't know how much your shoes are worth. Yeah. What like, type is, of is shoes? Worth, what, is are they it, all is in the same that? condition? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas... It gives you a common denominator so that you can make calculations. So that's what they mean by a unit of account. So nice and simple. The third is what I think is the most important, and that is a store of wealth. That's somewhere where you can park your money or your wealth, and it's going to be worth the same or more now than what it um, what it would be if you put it into something else. And for that reason, scarce items were really, really good. Because if you put it into something, let's say wood was the currency, then everyone just starts chopping down trees. And it's like, like everyone just has all of this useless wood. If we go with hard metals or scarce items, and this is actually the reason that gold, you know, people talk about the gold standard. It's because gold was the most difficult. It was the scarcest 
resource that was durable and transportable over time. And so if you had gold back in the day, then you can do really, really well. Uh, and it can, it can hold the value, which I think is fascinating. So I, I think it's I really fascinating. Have you, have you ever heard of chartalism? We're going to go on a little side quest here, but have you ever heard of chartalism? Let's go for it. Have you heard of chartalism? No. no. So, char- so chartalism is um, one of the kind of branches of modern monetary theory. And basically what it says is that since we moved away from the gold-backed currency standard, so once upon a time, you know, one note was was exchangeable for a certain amount of gold, right? So that was the so that was the that, that was the and then once we stopped being a gold-backed currency, once it became fiat money, which is effectively just promissory notes, the money actually had no value. Now a lot of people think they need to pay taxes because that's how the government makes revenue in order to pay for things like roads and schools, which we we all think that, right? Like, let's be honest, we all think that. Except the government makes the money. So the government doesn't need your money. It doesn't need your money for revenue. It makes the money. So it doesn't actually need any money. And so the the the, the chartalism is this theory that um, the only reason that taxes exist, so the, the government creates the money on one side, and then taxes are designed to take money out of the system. So effectively, it's the, des- the destruction of money at the point of taxation in order for the supply of money to be held to a nominal value system. So in between, so you've got the, you've got the, you've got the creation and the destruction of money on both ends. And because the government actually doesn't need any money to, uh, to actually, you know, money money's mostly doesn't exist anyway. It's less than 10% in real cash anyway. So it's this really uh, interesting idea that the only, you mentioned something, a unit of account i.e. something, some way that you, some reference point that you have to value. So in char- in the chartalism monetary theory, taxes are the unit of account. So effectively, the amount you pay in taxes, that's the only thing that defines the value of the dollar. How many dollars you're exchanging in tax, that is the thing that creates that moment of valuation of money in the system, if that makes okay. sense. I think that's one way of looking at it. I don't necessarily agree because the government... There's a difference between adding monetary supply and printing money and, and and taking money out of it. My father worked for a bank as just one of the one of the like janitor types and, and he said, you know, sometimes they'd have wheelbarrows of cash that they need to take to a furnace and it all gets ordered as it goes through there and they chuck it in the furnace and more gets printed over there and it's nice and equal. But it's a long time since we've we've left that kind of system. So when we talk about assets versus currencies what's special about um cryptocurrencies what that means is we now have currency that is cryptographically so that means using using code right um cryptographically coded so that it is completely decentralized so no one person can control it at the moment the australian dollars are controlled by the federal reserve they can they can and and the Australian government, right? Because the Fed, sorry, the um, RBA, the RBA is, I mean, people say that they're independent, but who do they report to? Who pays their salaries? They're not they're not that independent, really. <laughs> and and who tells them what you know the objectives are for the economy, etc. And and who gives them their mandate? Um, so the RBA decides how much money there is in the system, pretty much. Whereas uh, with uh, particularly Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it's decentralized so that no one entity has control over the money. And that's what people like about it. So that kind of leads me to there being what I think are four distinct kinds of people when it comes to cryptocurrency. Now, I think there's also a really valuable distinction here that I make in that when I talk about cryptocurrency, I'm not talking about Bitcoin. I, I just use the term Bitcoin to talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to talk about all of the other cryptocurrencies. And that distinction is absolutely vital. Now, if we have a look at the four Why, types why is that distinction vital? Like, what's the difference? Like, why, isn't, why don't you just bundle them together? Because Bitcoin has something very special, which is a limited supply forever. Like, the amount of Bitcoin that can be in circulation is limited and the distribution network uh, is such that they can never increase the supply. It's, it's just insanely impractical for them to increase the supply. Everything else has been created by someone and 
they tried to say that, oh no, it's secure, we can never expand it. Look, we have we have 32 different people that would need to agree. And Frank Habignale, um, the the film Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, that's based on Frank Habignale. He said, every system is man-made. All you need in order to break any security system is a sufficient level of collusion. If you have enough collusion, you can break the system. The amount of collusion required to break Bitcoin is more than 50% of all of the people using it. So why would 50%, more than 50% of the people using Bitcoin ever collude to make Bitcoin not work? It would, it would simply never happen. And so that is a, is a really, really key distinction. And so that makes it the scarcest resource. Now, back in the day, back in the days of the Roman Empire and before that, the Republic, Julius Caesar minted a coin called the Aureus, which was one fortieth of a Roman pound in gold. So it was about eight grams. And that was a hard currency because gold is scarce. And so people had the Aureus, but then they had silver coins, but you're mining silver at a faster rate than gold. And so those would gradually lose value over time because suddenly if there are more silver coins being produced every year, each individual silver coin is worth less. And then you had the the Az and the Quincunx and other copper coins where they're producing like 20, 30, 40% more of them every year. So you would keep your wealth in gold. You would keep some wealth in silver, but you'd have it around for buying higher priced items. But your daily stuff, you'd just be using, you'd just be using uh, the copper. Now, in today's environment, the vast majority of people who are smart store their wealth in property. And they just use the cash as, as like the copper coins because the value of cash is going down every year. I had a look at the amount um, of... With money, you've got different levels of money. You've got M0, M1, M2, M3, etc. that talk about the kind of money. And so, what, what does that mean? What, what, do you, what do you mean, M zero M one? Without, 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 we turn this into a, a, a nine-hour thesis on on the, the monetary system. What do you mean by those levels of money? They have they try to classify the amount of money in the system at different levels. So, pure cash is what you call. Um, it's not broad money. It's it's a it's a pretty small amount of the overall money that's in the system. And then by the time you're getting up to M3, you're including loans, you're including financial products, you're including all like like a lot more. So it's a good gauge of how many dollars there are um, invested, uh, being traded, because they, they classify them as M0, M1, M2, M3. M3 includes all of M2, M2 includes all of M1, M1 includes all of M0. And so if you look at the amount of M3, and if you look at the change in M3, from this year to last year, uh, I had a quick look, and the November to November comparison was 4.6% more. So that means that there's 4.6 more in Australia, 4.6% more cash that's been created. And so that means that your money, if you're holding cash, is worth 4.6% less than it was last year. That means you need to get a raise of 4.6% from your boss just to break even. But you've got to pay tax on that, which means you really need to be getting 7% more just to maintain your existing cost of living. Hectic, isn't it? it that, that is mental. So it's like, I mean, if people knew, there'd be riots in the streets. So Julius Caesar creates the Aureus. Then they start deflating it because governments are generally money hungry. Governments usually, if they get, I mean, what's the expression? There's nothing as permanent as a temporary government measure. So the government come in, they make some policy, it's expensive, it's just going to be for a little while, then it hangs around, it just keeps on draining all of this cash. And so as this cash keeps on um, having to go in there, government departments get larger and larger and larger. And so Emperor Nero, who was around in the first century AD, uh, about, well, he was 54 to 68 AD, so and Caesar was up until 27-odd BC, so 27, about 75 years later. He diluted the currency and made it 172nd of the Roman pound. And it kept on going through. Oh, he didn't make it that much. It was Diocletian who did that later. But there's this steady but quite slow um, inflation of the currency by making each coin. You can make them smaller. Deflation or inflation? It's an inflation of the currency. Yeah. Inflation of the currency supply. Yeah. Uh, by taking one coin and 
melting them down and making more coins. So they're inflating the currency supply. By the time Diocletian gets there in 301 AD, it's 172nd of a Roman pound. And Constantine gets in and he says, right, we've had enough of this. We're going to leave it at 172nd. And he mints, he calls the coin the Solidus. Now that coin lasted 1,200 years. And um, Bitcoin experts and currency experts like Safety Abus hypothesize that the main reason that the Eastern Roman Empire that Constantine was in charge of survived was because of the Solidus, because of that edict by Emperor Constantine. The Western Roman Empire collapsed because they just kept on inflating the currency. Because when you have a hard currency that the government can't just inflate, it requires that the government be really, really responsible. It stops them from doing stupid projects that use a whole lot of people's cash. It means that they have to be really minimalist in how they approach the regulations. Yeah, which is interesting because if you look at the US, for example, they just keep they just keep expanding their budgets. They just keep saying, "Ah, we need more money, more money, more money, more money, more money." The US government, go. yeah, the US government is now in a position where their national debt is about thirty-four trillion. Their tax income is no longer able to keep up with the interest payments. Right, it was about November, depending on which which chart you look at. It was October, November, or December of last year. Now, on top of that, they need to pay 1.5 trillion to Medicare, 1.8 trillion for Social Security, and 0.8 trillion for the military. About 800 billion goes into the military. Where are they going to get that four trillion dollars from? They have no way of getting it. <laughs> and if they raise taxes, an interesting thing: if the government raises taxes, it usually reduces the tax income that the government receives. If the government lowers taxes, it increases the revenue that they receive. Be- governments are in competition with one another to get tax revenue. And so the people that can get the right rates are the ones that end up getting a lot of tax revenue. If we look at Ireland, they're taxing Google, Apple, a bunch of other companies at 10%. And so they headquarter there. And so Ireland ends up getting tons of this cash. And there are a lot of instances where uh, US presidents in particular would reduce the um, uh, the uh, tax rate and it would increase the amount of tax revenue that they received. So that that's kind of interesting, but that's not a that's not going to be a popular idea because suddenly you say, all right, we've got a we've got a revenue problem, the government, so we're going to reduce taxes to get more revenue. That sounds counterintuitive. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting though. So going back to the 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 three or four types of people. Who invest in crypto though? Let's get let's get back let's get back to that. All right. So we have we have sorry. Yeah, yeah, go yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So what are they, what are what are they? We have one type who don't understand crypto. They it's 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 new. Don't really understand it. I just want to invest in what I know. I know property or I know stocks. I know shares. Whatever. This stuff it doesn't really make sense to me as an asset. It doesn't stack up. So that's that's the first type. Uh the second type are your speculators. They're people who are looking at it the way you might look at uh, foreign exchange markets and things like that. You're, you're speculating, right? It's it's based on sentiments more than anything else. Um, I knew a guy over here in Japan who was working at uh, Magellan or Magellan, and he said he was fairly high up and he was a, a Forex trader. And he said, foreign exchange, it's pretty much all sentiment. So you've got to work out what the sentiment is. And this is the same with, with people who... You know, they might think, oh, Solana is great, or Cardano is great, or one of these other cryptos because it has this functionality. And it's like, well, yeah, great, but why would you invest in it? You're basically gambling. You should go to the, just go to the casino. It's more fun, and the drinks are free. So so, so just go and do that. And so those people, I know a fair few people who've been crypto speculators, and none of them are up. They're all down, and some of them being, some of them are being completely wrecked. So it's like, okay, don't do that. Um, you are basically relying on the greater fool idea of I'm buying something that's not worth the money I'm paying for it, so I'm a fool, but I'm hoping that there's someone stupider than I am, a greater fool, who will buy it off me at a higher price. Yeah, that, and that, that, that was the thing that I always assumed about all crypto, including Bitcoin. I was like, ah, it's just this, it's the greater fool theory. You're just relying on somebody eventually to just pay you more money than you paid for it for no good reason. But now that I understand Bitcoin more, it's actually more like, okay, because it's a currency that more people may want to participate in, but it's got a limited supply, therein lies the utility and demand uh, side. Whereas to your point, 
a lot of the other ones, it's just kind of like, yeah, maybe. It's kind of fad-based stuff. If you can get in at the right time, get out at the right time, you can do okay. But we'll, we'll think of what you want Bitcoin for. Now, we talked about the three um, defining characteristics of a currency. The medium of exchange, so you buy stuff with it. A unit of account, so you can calculate with it how much stuff's worth. And a store of wealth. Now, Bitcoin is the best store of wealth because it's the scarcest resource that we have ever had. And so if you store your wealth there, it doesn't mean that you might exchange some of that Bitcoin into something else like Cardano because of smart contracts or you know some marketing woo-woo. You might go for that, but you're going to store the bulk of your wealth in Bitcoin because it's the scarcest and it's guaranteed to be the scarcest. And so it's sort of like, well, yeah, you've got cash, but you've also got points that you could use at, you know, Big W or whatever. If you go to a casino, you need to exchange them into chips to play. But nobody goes out there and buys a whole lot of casino chips thinking that it's a good investment, right? I'm going to take all these casino chips at home and, and come back and exchange them later and they'll be worth more. No one, no one really thinks that. And so Bitcoin as the store of wealth, that is at the heart of it, which kind of leads us to the third type of person. And now that it's starting, I think, well, you see BlackRock recently got their ETF launched. So they now have an exchange-traded fund. So in the same way that gold had a, a fund launched and there are lots of property funds where you don't have to go out and buy a property, you could just buy into a fund that's on an exchange. You can now do that with Bitcoin. Now, to give you an idea of how big BlackRock are, all of the residential property in Australia, if you add it all up, according to the, I think it was the ABS, I looked this up last week, it's about 6.8 trillion US dollars. So if you wanted to buy every house, every unit, everything in Australia, you're looking at about 6.8 trillion. BlackRock have about 7.5 trillion. So they go and buy all of that and not even blink. Hopefully they don't. Um, but that's, that's to give you an idea of the size of BlackRock and how dominant they are as a market force. They have uh, positions on an enormous number of the companies on the S&P. So they are a massive player and they absolutely kind of reign. They're their top dog when it comes to finance and everything. And they've gone and launched an ETF and this is, this is Bitcoin. And what I think is they have recognized that there's a 1% chance or a 2% chance that Bitcoin could take off. We want to be first to market. We want to be giving people access to that. And so we're reaching a point now where people feel like if you're a financial planner, you have a fiduciary obligation to have the Bitcoin conversation with clients. You need to be you need to talk to them going, you know, have you heard of Bitcoin? It might be worth getting a little bit of it. I've got a, a good mate who's an orthodontist. Um, and he just bought a couple a little while back. And I said, well, what did you do that for? And he said, it's just as a hedge in case it takes off. It's like, it's kind of annoying because the fourth type of person is what we would call the hodler. And these are the people who are diehard believers in Bitcoin, right? They, they believe that it's the most important shift that the world is going to take. They have like a cult-like a cult-like belief that this is going to change everything. They think that, you know, the way it, if you, if you fix the money, you fix the world. And so they think we'll have no more war. We'll have no more famine. We won't have massive government intermed interventions on things. Things will become a lot more uh, unregulated. Governments won't be cherry picking which industries get to thrive and which ones get to fumble about. The free market will open up, and when you do that and you combine it with a whole lot of other things that happen when you have a hard currency like gold or like Bitcoin, you basically create an incredible, like an amazing society, like like absolutely amazing like we've never seen before. So they basically think they are, they are writing the next verse of John Lennon's song Imagine. They, they think that utopia is around the corner. And I sympathize with that view. I, I think it makes sense. Does um, it make sense? I mean, it, sound, it sounds like a little ambitious. It does make sense. I think it'll happen, but I don't know when. And this is the crux of it. And so to understand, to understand that and how it pertains to property, because the property piece is really important in this. If we have a look at societies and the way people think, at the moment, 
we are on a fiat system, right? Yeah. We we were on well, the gold what does standard. That mean? What, what does that mean, right? What does a fiat system mean? It's a it's a Latin word, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, we were on a we were on a gold standard, and the very first person, the the person who actually set the original gold standard was Isaac Newton, and he set the gold standard and so people were using gold to exchange and then it gets annoying and so people start making up promissory notes. So this this note represents that much gold. And so that's the way it was working for ages. But then England actually went off the gold standard during World War One and started printing more money or more notes than represented the gold that they had in the vaults. And that is one of the reasons that World War One extended for so long because a few different governments started doing it. And uh, there's an economist, John Maynard Keynes or Keynes. Some people call him Keynes, some people call him Keynes. The economic theory is called Keynesian economics. Started to take off. Now, he recognized that spending was an indication of the health of an economy. And it's wonderful for governments because they get to print lots of cash, right? One of the, one of the hallmarks or cornerstones of Keynesian economics is that there needs to be monetary expansion because that represents production. And so everyone who learns modern economic theory is basically learning Keynesian economics. There's about 10% who learn monetary, um, uh, monetarist economic policy. But one thing that the Keynesians and monetarists agree on is that you need to keep increasing the monetary supply to match increases in production. More people, more technology, production goes up, so the money needs to reflect that. And as the governments were printing more cash, like America was supposed to be on the gold standard after Bretton Woods. They had a, a Bretton Woods agreement, which set the gold standard just after World War II. And then by 1971, the US were way off that standard. And the French said, you know, can we have the can we see the gold? And the and Nixon was like, yep. Yeah. And they're like, can we see it now? And it was like, oh, okay, we're we're using a different system now, uh, <laughs> and, and and so suddenly it became clear that the US were effectively defaulting on all of these promissory notes that they had been sending around the world, and so the US is like, well, we've beat the world's reserve currency for such a long time, and that puts us in a really good position because it cost them seventeen cents to print a one hundred dollar bill back then, and it cost the rest of the world a hundred dollars worth of stuff to buy to to, to get a hundred dollar bill. Which represented maybe eighty dollars worth of gold, um, and so the U.S. were able to perpetuate the system. It meant they could expand their military, invade lots of countries, do all sorts of fairly horrific things, and they needed to preserve that position. And so they made an agreement with Saudi Arabia uh, called the petrodollar, and Saudi Arabia agreed only to sell oil uh, in U.S. dollars anywhere in the world. And on the conditions that the US would guarantee their security. And so then we shifted from a gold standard to a fiat system where the notes are not um, pegged to gold. So we're off a gold standard and that allows governments to print as much cash as they want. Now, the mechanism by which they print the cash, sometimes they actually just fire up the, they, they just change the number in the spreadsheet and say, this is how much more money there is. We have it with the government and we're going to spend it on this infrastructure project. But actually, the vast majority of it comes from the way loans happen in banks. And so that's the way the monetary expansion system happens. Yeah, bingo. And so what, what all this points to is, you know, like the money system is pretty spurious at best, right? Like it, it is, there is like- It's broken. <laughs> it's completely broken. And uh, most people just don't understand that. And this is why real estate is such a strong move for so many people. 100%. Because it is a real asset, it takes your cash out of the money system, the monetary system, and puts it into a real asset that has real utility, which can increase at, at a pace that is either equal to or faster than inflation, and gen generally speaking. And so rather than your kind of money just being corroded because somebody's changed some numbers in a system or because somebody else has come up with some other bullshit agreement somewhere to just change the kind of way we think about money or, you know, because like it used to, for, for a long time, it was um, 10, you know, banks could have lend out 90% of the amount of uh, the available cash they've had. But I've heard, I've heard 
uh, recently that it could be as low as three percent in real cash that exists uh, in in the in the in the modern system. That that would be right. The limit to how much they have there they if you just let the banks create as much money as they can, they will because it's banks it's it's money that the bank has, and so um, the government comes out with regulations to try to limit the amount of inflation that would happen if it were a completely free market, which is a sensible move by them. But what it does is disguises the fact that dollars are becoming worth 4.6 to 7% less every single year. Now, there's something called the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect says that the closer you are to the money printing, the richer you become or the, or the more you benefit. So where is the money being printed? Well, it's the person who buys the property, it's the bank, and it's the government. Because you buy the property, you get the loan, the bank creates the money for the loan. They don't use existing cash that they have, they essentially create the money for the loan. So the bank has now made a whole lot of money because you've got to make the repayments. You are benefiting because you've been able to buy an asset. And then the government, with their cozy arrangement with the banks, issues a bond that the bank then goes and buys. And this is how monetary expansion just keeps happening. You know what's funny as well? Like even with a mortgage, right? So this is this is why property is so good, particularly with leverage, right? So let's say you've saved 20% deposit, let's just say. You go, I want to go and buy this $500,000 house. I've got $100,000 of cash. Okay, so there's your cash. And then there's the $400,000 of debt that you need. Everyone thinks that what the bank does is goes, okay, I will uh, loan you $400,000 in cash. Like there's a pile of money somewhere. And then that cash then goes, gets transferred over to somebody else. And so they've got $400,000 of cash and they've taken it. Okay, I've got you. I'll take $400,000 of my money and I'll send it over to this other person over here. But that doesn't actually happen. What what actually happens is they say, okay, based on your credit worthiness, we're going to create a bit of paper that says we're willing to bet that this person's good for the money, right? So, So they create a security, right? which is backed by your credit worthiness. And then they use that as a transfer to another institution that says, look, we've got someone over here that we are willing to bet that is they're going to pay us this much money over time. So therefore, we're going to create this security, which we're going to trade to you in exchange for you to then represent that value to someone else. So no money actually moves anywhere. There's just a whole bunch of people creating these security promises based on your individual credit worthiness. Yes, and updating spreadsheets. And 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 that that's the whole system. Now, I don't actually think it's a good system. I think it's a terrible system. But I didn't make it and I can't change it. And so, you know, you can complain about the rules or you can just go out and win. Well, this is this is this is exactly my argument. It's like you can sit around and kind of, you know, crack the shits about it all. Or you can just work out how to play within play within the system and go create your own reality. This is why I don't really have that much sympathy with people go, oh, it's unfair that property investors get rich. It's like, well, you know the rules. You know the rules. You, you know that this is how it happens. You're in Australia. There's a, there's a safety net in Australia that means anybody can get wealthy, like massively wealthy. You need to, because that safety net is called mining. If things are really, really crap for you, you can spend five years working in the mines, avoid some of the pitfalls. And then you have enough capital. You've, you've got enough of a job. You've got enough credit history. You can accumulate three, four, five, six properties in that time. You're set up for life. And it's you don't, not even need to, you don't even need to do that. You don't even need to go work in a mine. So like, like the system is built for, for people to be able to get ahead as long as they choose to. But, but the, the kind of like looping back to the, the, the kind of core of the conversation, the reason crypto is interesting is because the money system is broken. The reason real estate is interesting is because the money system is broken, right? And once you, the sooner you understand that the money system is broken, right? You get paid in money, right? Just in very simple terms, we'll just call it money, even though it may or may not actually exist. You get paid in money, right? So then you have this, you, you get paid in a unit of measurement, which is fundamentally broken and volatile and weak and just kind of like, just kind of almost imaginary. So then you have a choice. Do you want to kind of keep it in this, highly, you know, fragile state, or do you want to put it somewhere else? Now, the benefit of putting it in real estate, so we talked about earlier about how crypto was a currency, not as a currency, it makes sense as an investment or an asset. It's a little, it might not be the right. The interesting thing about um, real estate is it's the opposite. It's not a currency as much as it is an asset. 
And so when you've got these kind of decisions to make, you've got to think about things like, you know, liquidity and all of these other kind of, uh, you know, kind of considerations. But from the perspective of crypto versus real estate, if it depends on how you're thinking about it. Because if you're thinking about it as uh, an investment class, I mean, I, I still think that uh, unless you're, to your point earlier, taking gambling, like gambling on these kind of like small coins to 1,000x or whatever, which is not a viable strategy, right? Then I, I still don't think you can beat real estate as an investment class, as an investment asset, because it's got so many fundamental attributes that point towards it being a great way to not just store your wealth, but to actually increase your wealth versus uh, certainly, and this is my point of view, and I'd be super open to yours, Bitcoin, more specifically than sort of just crypto generally, is much more of a beneficial way to take your money out of the money system and to put it into a different currency system. It has that advantage. And I think you're you're right in that right now under the, under the current circumstances, property is the best asset class out there. Now, if you get paid, like I get, I get paid my salary, it's in Australian dollars. I then have to think, what am I going to do with the Australian dollars? You know, I pay, I pay the bills, right? The, the kids get fed, they get the uniforms, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what's left over? What am I going to do with that? I can't just put it in the bank. It'll be worth 7% less next year, right? Um, I have to do something with it. And so I have to think about asset allocation and everybody in Australia does, right? Now, why should an 80-year-old who has been working their whole life and has saved up a lot of money, why should they still be having to think about asset allocation as opposed to Japan where there hasn't been all of this inflation? When I first came to Japan, uh, Coca-Cola was, you know, whatever it was, uh, 147 yen. Uh, and then when I came back here in 2018, which was 17 years later, to I came here in 2017, it was 151 yen because it'd been just a little tax adjustment. That is, the, essentially, there's no inflation. And so my wife's, uh, my mother-in-law, right, my wife's mum, she doesn't have to think about asset allocation. Everything that she saved all over her life, it's just parked in the bank and it's not losing value. Now, there's been a little bit of inflation recently, but that's kind of a bit unfortunate, but it's not a lot. It's not a lot in Japan. So that's the first thing is that Bitcoin is non-inflationary, whereas cash is inflationary, which is why Bitcoin is a better store of value. So, now, so, so, so let me just interject there, though. Like Bitcoin has also been known to be quite volatile. So given all of its stable characteristics, uh, you know, is it is it even reasonable to say that it's uh, like if you go put up $100,000 in Bitcoin and, and then that it goes from $20,000 down to $10,000, you know, like in the last kind of 12 months, it, was, it went down a lot before it goes back up. At the moment, at the moment, we're in very early adoption phases. And so whales, so big players that have billions of dollars, they can manipulate the price. It can still be manipulated by the media and things like that. So right now, it's not really at a point where you can say it's fulfilling its promise as a currency. Too many people are still viewing it as an asset. Once we get to a point where the majority of people involved in Bitcoin and the majority of the population are thinking of it like that fourth group of people I mentioned, the hodlers, then everyone's into Bitcoin because it's the best store of wealth. And so when it's the best store of wealth, everyone goes into Bitcoin and then that volatility evens out. Now, when we have a look at goods, things like gold, gold's a great example because gold has a market value and it has a monetary value. Now, that market value is how much it costs for its utility uses, like it's used in teeth, it's used in microprocessors, it's used in, it's used in technology. So it does have a value. But then on top of that, as a store of wealth, as somewhere to park your cash, it has more value as well. Now, property has the same thing. Property that has its utility value, someone to live there, but people are storing their wealth. They're storing their wealth in property, in luxury cars, in art. Rich people are looking for ways of, of keeping my wealth somewhere where it's not just going to disappear. And so the hodlers believe that once we get widespread adoption of Bitcoin, then all of that monetary value will go out of the property market and go into Bitcoin. Do you think that would happen though? Like, do you think that I don't, I don't, I don't see it going out of the property market and into Bitcoin. I, like, I, I don't. I well, think it that depends how long. Depends over what time frame. For right now, yeah. no, dreaming. Yeah. So, the, any Bitcoin that I hold, it's a thirty-year play. I'm not going to see it. 
I'm, I'm not going to see any returns. I'm never going to sell it. I'm going to make sure that it gets passed on to my children, but it's probably my grandchildren that are going to get the biggest benefit from it, right? Because it could take 30 years until we get that widespread adoption. In the, so if you want cash for your children and grandchildren or grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., then yeah, buy a couple of Bitcoin. If you actually want to have a good life, and you want to grow your wealth now over the course of the next three, four, five, 10, 15 years, then property comes out winning easy. I mean, it's not even close. Now, the reason that people want to take that 30-year bet, the hodlers, is because they believe they're creating a better future. Now, we talked before about Keynesian economics and how spending was the most important thing in an economy. And you look at the way our entire economic system is designed, it's to promote spending. Everything that we talk about, like like GDP, is essentially a measure of spending, right? And and a recession is bad. Well, what's a recession? Recession just means there's a little bit less spending than there was before. Why is that bad? Like people have just spent a little bit. Why is that so bad? It's like, but but we know recession is like a bad thing. But is it really that bad? Just means there's a bit less spending. GDP? Well, that's that's a totally artificial metric anyway, right? Like. If someone comes along and smashes that window, where GDP is all of the spending that's happening within a country plus the trade balance. If someone comes along and smashes that window, I have to get the window replaced. That might cost $400, right? By the time a guy comes out, he, he measures it up, he goes, he gets the piece, he comes back. It might be 400 bucks, say. Maybe it's 200 maybe it's 300 That gets added to GDP. They're not factoring in the loss of value to me. And so now you've even got economists in the States who are saying, you know, what we probably need is an alien invasion. Because then the amount of money exchanging hands as we rebuild everything will make the economy look really work, look really good. That's how that's how mental they are in their head. Consumer confidence is another is another metric that we use. CPI, all of these measures, they're all based around like how much do people want to spend? Whereas yeah, which has which has a, which has a place though, like which does have a place, right? Because if you you know in the in the context of how our system currently works, if there's less spending, that means businesses make less revenue. If businesses make less revenue, businesses can employ less people, which increases the unemployment rate. Which means there's more people who are not earning as much of an income and may rely on the government for welfare. And so it does have an impact. It's not just an imaginary concept, and that's why I think people do get concerned by it because it's like. Well, my job security is uh, less. You know, I have less security in my in my job. Therefore, I'm more likely to save more money because I don't know what's going to happen. And so, you know, it does become a bit of a, you know, if we, in the current system we have, it is built on things like you know the velocity of money and all of this kind of stuff. And so, unless we have a fundamental system shift, you know, those things actually are real. Like they actually have real impacts, and it's useful. It's useful to be able to work out, right, okay, what's what's happening? What do I need to prepare for? And things like that. But if you're on a hard money system, that all changes. Because at the moment, not only are we, um, well, we're, we're massively encouraged to spend, right? Like, I get my salary, a little bit left over, invest it or spend it. That's what it comes down to. And having worked for more than a decade in marketing, I can see that a lot of people just like to spend it. And so it's just this constant spending that happens all of the time and, and get credit cards and get credit card debt. Oh, that's good for the government as well, because that's more that's that's just more cash going into that system. And so we also think we have to spend it quickly because the money's going to be worth less later. Now, if you're on a hard currency, that gets flipped on its head. And this is why the hodlers, this is why I think the hodlers are right when they say that they think Bitcoin can create a better world. Because suddenly Let's say you make something. Uh, what do you make? Um, coffee machines. Got myself a nice coffee machine the other day. Coffee machines, right? Uh, DeLonghi, um, about three, four hundred bucks. Just one of those. Yeah, it's it's all right. I quite like it. Nice. Made in Italy. That's an important. That's an important point that we'll circle back to. <laughs> um, let's say that there are a million of them out there at the moment, and the amount of Bitcoin in the world or the amount of whatever hard currency we're using is fixed. And then the following year, that company makes another 50,000. So that's 5% increase in the supply. And so the individual unit price of all of those is going to go down a little bit. Maybe not massively, but it's going to go down a little bit. 
And so Deloli or whoever makes these machines is thinking, well, how do we get someone to buy it now instead of in a year? With that, just, just, be- just, just to kind of point out something obvious, that, that, that example assumes that demand stays the same. Absolutely, right? So if, if demand stays the same, and so what kind of things hold their price? Well, collector's items hold their price, right? This, this bookcase behind me, that's not going to hold its value, right? Um, we entered this era of mass production and went away from artisanship. And uh, a mate of mine, he's an orthodontist over from, over from Australia, over from Canberra. And there's an area in Japan called Kapabashi in Tokyo, which has all of the knives. It's where you can buy knives, kitchen knives. And so we're walking up and down that street because he, he wanted to get his wife a nice knife. And you can see these artisans in shop windows sort of chiseling initials and things on these knives. You can see some of them sharpening things like that, right? These are all handmade, amazingly good knives. He bought one for about $800. That's going to last him the rest of his life. Probably it'll get passed down. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hold its value because it's a collector's item, right? And yeah, they're going to make some more next year, but that's that specific one. It's probably going to hold its value as opposed to some mass-produced rubbish that you get down in Target where it's like, oh, okay, the knife's, the knife's stuffed. Let's pop down the road and get another one kind of thing. And so what Bitcoiners believe is anyone who's making anything under a hard currency suddenly has to make something that's going to hold its value. And so it's got to be special instead of just mass produced. Like how much more characterless monochrome bullshit do we really need from Ikea? Right? I mean, it has no heart. You can't say that any Ikea good actually. No, actually no, has no, but it, no, but it has, no, but it has, a, and has a, uh, has a specific functionality that appeals, that appeals to a very specific cohort of individuals. And so, yeah, you could argue that it's not like some beautiful, handcrafted artisan piece but the minimalist design does appeal to people the fact that it is uh, affordable appeals to people that are, that are in a position to be they can if they can decorate their home or furnish their home with ostensibly good looking stuff subject subject subjectivity um is is required based on the good looking piece is you it know. really good looking though no but no but, but that's, that's your that's your subjectivity right because you know right right now i have an ikea desk right i think it looks pretty good i think it looks like it's worth more than a hell of a lot than what we paid for it, and so you reckon? Yeah, hundred okay. percent. Now it depends on what you get, and I understand we've had the well, I've had the cheap kind of like push the bookcase and it falls over type stuff as well. <laughs> yeah. um, but the the point is that the value that is created in that exchange is dependent on the the person that is that is participating in that exchange. Because when I was in my early twenties, you know, the fact that I could go to IKEA and buy a bunch of furniture and like have all this kind of like new stuff in my house, man, that was crazy. And I could never afford to go and buy like the artists and stuff. And so the value was created through that emotional experience. And so, so I, I, I think that the, the, the concept that you're talking about kind of makes sense, except for the fact that there's a whole lot of subjectivity and value gets created in a whole bunch of different ways. Now, you could argue that a plastic bag has no value, right? It's just a plastic bag. It's a piece of trash. However, for someone in some set of circumstances, that plastic bag may actually be quite valuable because they might use it for something very specific in their day-to-day that they need it. It might be to take their stuff to school or, you know, something. It's got some value. So I, I agree with much of what you've said, but I don't necessarily think that, uh, you, you know, I, I think that when we look at it, I think the money system is broken, right? So having a different system that is more structured, less fuckwithable, for lack of a better term, and more constrained necessarily means that it's going to be more stable as a currency over time, which I think is good. But I still think that, you know, I think it's a long speculative way in the distance for it to, I mean, I can't see a situation where it would suddenly trump property as a as an opportunity, you know? Well, if, if it's there in... 30 years, right? Let's say let's say that the hotlets are right and in 30 years Bitcoin is the currency. It's the it's the world's reserve currency. And it's also the world's best because it's the scarcest resource. It's the best store of wealth because there's less of it each year because people lose their wallets, they forget their forget codes to to access their Bitcoin. There's less each year. Then 
people start using it as a store of wealth, which means property no longer gets used as a store of wealth. Now, when that happens, I think property prices would come down, but in Bitcoin terms, they would. And what happens then is everyone can afford to have their own home. And then people actually put pride into it because it's like, this is my home. It's not like an investment or an investment property. Um, to go back to the IKEA example, it's hard for companies to keep making goods that are going down in price, right? Like not many people want to be in the business of making plasma screen TVs because they just become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every year. And there's not that much additional functionality that you can create. And so, yeah, there might be those students who, who need the IKEA stuff, but I think we would see a glacial shift towards more artisanal stuff across everything. When I was, we were walking up and down that street, I was going, okay, you're seeing all these beautiful knives. If the hodlers are right, it's like this for everything. It's like this for shoes. It's like this for suits. It's like this for, for everything that you can imagine. Everything becomes a collectible because that's going to hold, hold the wealth. So if you've got a certain amount of Bitcoin, 100 grand worth of Bitcoin, you only want to be buying stuff that you feel you really, really like and is going to hold value and you're going to look after. You don't want to be wasting it on something that's going to collapse or you're going to be chucking out. And so that changes society. When, you, when we look at periods in history where there have been, where amazing things have happened, like the Renaissance, Florence and Venice, they're on a hard currency, they're on the florin. And it changes people's time perspectives as well. And it changes the education system. It, it changes everything, if the hodlers are right. Because, like, at the moment, there's so much waste. Having all of this extra money means that there's an incredible amount of waste in the system as well. There's waste by the government. There's a waste in office work, basically. Like, the amount of resources that go into managing this kind of bullshit financial system is incredible. Like GDP for the whole world, 75 trillion, right? If you, if you add it all up, about 75 trillion. The amount of money that gets exchanged each day on foreign exchanges is 5 trillion. And so, so that means that we're up around 25, 26 times as much money as just circulating around the place of the value of the stuff that we're actually making. And that's all because people are trying to work out how much stuff is worth and how to price it and creating all of these weird financial products. And I agree with Elon Musk when he says the legal profession and financial services are overrepresented in terms of IQ. There's so much wastage that goes on in there. What if all of those people who are apparently intelligent working in the tall buildings in the city, what if they were directed at technology, biotech, engineering, all of these other things that can actually make a difference to people's lives? instead of shuffling numbers around spreadsheets or trying to argue their way around the most natural interpretation of a word because that might help their client. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so what will help Bitcoin become, and this is where it's really interesting, the impact that it can have on property because the forces that would make Bitcoin the world's reserve currency would basically be a hyperinflation event, right? To get that, to get that widespread adoption. We might be on track for that, but the same thing that would cause Bitcoin to, to go through the roof is the same thing that would cause property to go through the roof. But it is, it's the same stuff. If the, if the currency inflates, if people start jumping into Bitcoin, then property in dollar terms is going to go through the roof as well. And the thing about property is that you can see that growing in the next two, three, four, five years. You don't need to be speculating on Bitcoin, which at the moment it's at like 40, 42. Like any Bitcoin that I have, I'm a hodler, so I don't even look at the price. It's like, you know, I might look at it three times a year kind of thing. It just, just doesn't matter what it's doing at the moment because I'm not speculating. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. But yeah, I, d I definitely think like going back to the, the core of the conversation, I think, you know, if you, a lot of people are trying to work out, should I invest in crypto? Well, you know, maybe you might want to diversify your, where you're putting your money. Sure. But from a from a from a genuine perspective, there's probably still nothing better than than real estate. At least from as an investment class for at least the next 20, 30 years, probably. Well, the hotlers believe that it's gonna happen, but no one knows when. Right? <laughs> and the number of reports and crypto is always in the news, or Bitcoin's always in the news, oh it's hit a new high, this has happened, expert predicts this. Bitcoin really doesn't like being told what to do. 
I think, or, or I think, I think a big part of it as well is going to depend on what happens with the U.S. Right? Because and the U. the U.S. economy is not in good shape, and I think the more that that continues to you know represent an empire in decline, the more likely it is people are going to want to take their money out of the system, which is more likely means that more more money is going to flow into Bitcoin, which means necessarily the prices are going to inflate because of the constrained supply. Yes, hundred percent right. Now, what's going to happen with the U.S. dollar? Either they're going to default or they're going to hyperinflate. Yeah. Those, those are the only two options that they're left with. We don't know jubilee. how long. They could, well, that's what Bitcoin would be, right? Because something would then need to replace the eh, US not dollar. Not necessarily. You can just write it off. You can just say, right, we're just going to wipe the decks and start again. That's a, that's a debt jubilee. You just write it off. If they you don't did have that, to replace it. That's effectively a default. Yeah, and it then- depends on the label you give it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so if that's a default... Who will ever buy US bonds again? The government gets themselves in real trouble if they if they default. And so, yeah, okay, well, we dodged that bullet and and we've just traded it for, for two bullets coming down the channel later. Um, so those are the two options. And so then sitting around thinking, okay, well, if one of those if either of those two options happens, what happens? Well, the US dollar they will try to avoid defaulting for as long as possible, which means printing a lot more cash. If they're printing a lot more cash, oil prices in cash terms will go up because the Saudis the Saudis want to get a decent amount of cash. They want to get value for the oil that they're selling. And so then what's going to happen to the rest of the world? We're sitting around thinking, we need US dollars to buy this oil. So we need to exchange our money into US dollars to get the oil. So we're going to have to inflate our currencies as well to match that. And we'll we'll blame whoever we want, right? We'll blame Putin or Hamas or you know whichever whichever villain is in the news for a particular week. But ultimately, the Australian economy or the New Zealand economy, they may need to those governments might need to inflate their currencies as well. And when they do that, dollars are going to go. Uh, property is going to go up. So a lot of people they're trying to work out what's going to happen to the property market. Once you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. I've landed at the conclusion that it all boils down to one question. Does the government need money? If the government needs a lot of money, property prices on average across the country are really going to pop. Knowing exactly when and where, or sorry, knowing exactly where, that's what we have AI for. We've, we've got Goldie, which can you know pinpoint the suburbs, work, and we can work out the properties, we can strategize. But if you're just thinking broad brush, is the property market going to go up or down this year? It's like the amount of money that the Aussie government needs, it's not insignificant, right? GDP, um, debt to GDP is up in the 40s, right? It's, it's come back a little bit recently, but it was 47 point whatever, and now it's 42 point whatever. It's not great. The government That's definitely needs cash. It's not that cash. bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad, but the government needs cash. Yeah, the government of course. definitely needs cash. And all I'm thinking whenever it comes to working out, What's going to happen to the property market? Are we going to go up, down? We're going to stay the same. Does the government need cash? If they need cash, then the property market's going to pop. It's going to boom. So that's my that's my conclusion for 2024. It's going to be an awesome year for property. If you're in property, you're sitting back. Oh, yeah, watching, it's going to be massive. You're, you're I, watching, I think the next couple of years, I think until I think we're going to see a big spike until about 2026. That's my that's my hypothesis. I don't think it'll slow down for a very long time because the government is going. To, the government needs money now. They're going to keep on needing money. Property prices are just going to keep on going up because that's inevitable. And at what point is the government not going to need money? I can't see. I can't no, see this government slowing down. It's a fundamental down. system change. You know, yeah, it's I, like, yeah. I, I can't see them slowing down. So you can just sit back. And added to that, we've got various supply constraints because I've had to push the interest rates up, which means builders can't build as much. So we have a supply constraint. It's, it's just going to keep on going and going and going. And then the government comes out and they try to do something stupid to fix the problem, like, oh, we're going to improve housing affordability by adding this extra tax to property investors or property owners. And it's like, well, property investors don't care. They're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, uh, yeah, I guess the tenant has to cover that. <laughs> That's all they do. That's all the government does, right? They come out with measures to improve housing affordability and make housing less affordable. Like, how many times have we seen that merry-go-round? Exactly, exactly. So the the kind of key takeaway here is that, you know, from all for all intents and purposes, there's only really one direction that property is going to be going over the next uh, little bit of time. And so if you want to participate in that, 
it's a great time to get involved, particularly particularly with what's in front of us. Um, Emil, I'm mindful of time because I've got to jump to another meeting. So we're actually going to have to wrap. The, we're going to have to wrap this up. I'd love to continue this oh, on good. because we could talk for hours about monetary uh, monetary policy. But I thought found this to be uh, really interesting and useful. Hopefully, it's going to uh, shed some light for a lot of people on how to think about cryptocurrency versus property and where they should be thinking about investments or asset classes versus uh, currency diversification. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll see you in the next one. Cheers.